When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty. This week, I have two pronunciation corrections, a quick and dirty tip about making the phrase attorney general, plural, and a meaty middle about how to write good survey questions. It's harder than it seems. In the tumultuous ongoing saga of how to pronounce the word spelled T-U-M-U-L-T, a couple of weeks ago, I told you that it's pronounced tumult. And that's correct, for American English. But all of you international listeners registered your displeasure because it's pronounced differently in British English. It has more of a Y sound, like tumult, tumult, tumult. So in American English, it's tumult, and in British English, it's tumult, I think. I looked it up in the Collins Dictionary, which has a British focus. (laughs) I think from now on, I'm just going to use the words strife, ruckus, or riot. Although now I can't get tumult out of my mind. I heard someone pronounce it wrong in another podcast last week, and Kelsey tweeted that she noticed the narrator of the Wanderlust audiobook pronounce it correctly. So I'm sorry if you're now noticing tumult everywhere. And I also pronounced another word wrong recently. In the episode about the names of the months, I told you that we got the Gregorian calendar when Pope Gregory VIII issued a papal bull. Except it should have been pronounced papal, not papal. It's a papal bull. Because of the spelling, P-A-P-A-L, I suspected that papal was related to the word father, and I was right. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, the words have mixed origins, but you can trace both Pope and Papal back to the word Papa, another word for father. And thanks to Bruce for pointing out my pronunciation error. The second part of Papal Bull is interesting, too. It's been used since the 1300s to describe an edict or mandate from the Pope or Church. It seems like an odd word until you realize that it has the same root as the word bulletin. You and I can send or post a bulletin, but the Pope issues a papal bull. Next, how to make the phrase attorney general plural. And believe it or not, I wrote this segment last week before all the news about the attorney general broke because I kept hearing people talk about all the state attorneys general. For my listeners who aren't in the U.S., the nation has one federal attorney general, but each state also has its own state-level attorney general. And I was really pleased because most people were making it plural the right way, by making the word attorney plural. The U.S. has one attorney general, but we have many state attorneys general. In the phrase attorney general, attorney is the main part. And the word general is descriptive. It tells us what kind of attorney we have to deal with. It's the same rule we follow for similar phrases, such as sister-in-law and editor-in-chief. 
you make the main noun plural. So I have two sisters-in-law, and The Atlantic has had 14 editors-in-chief. And congratulations to all those news writers who've been getting it right recently. Remember the frustration of trying to memorize vocabulary and grammar rules only to find you couldn't actually use the language in real life? Well, there's a better way to learn. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program with millions of users learning 25 different languages, and you can get it on your desktop or as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone immerses you in many ways with its intuitive process. It's really different. You pick up the language naturally, first with words, then the phrases, and then with sentences. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Grammar Girl listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Is it rosettastone.com grammar. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com grammar today. Hey, it's Mignon. If you want to do more to hone your communication skills, then check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by the Stanford Graduate School of Business and hosted by my friend and Stanford lecturer, Matt Abrahams. You may remember Matt from his interview on the show back in September when he shared his top tips for becoming a better writer and speaker. Think Fast, Talk Smart is his Webby award-winning podcast, which has been downloaded 41 million times and has been the number one career podcast in more than 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Whether you're making a wedding toast or presenting at work, strong speaking skills are critical to success in business and in life which is why Matt sits down with experts every week to talk about the best tips to unlock your communication potential. Hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, speechwriter and best-selling author Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. So what are you waiting for? Listen to Think Fast, Talk Smart, every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. And tell Matt I said hi. Hey there. If you are a curious person who loves to learn, there's another podcast I think you'll really enjoy. Freakonomics Radio is hosted by bestselling author Stephen Dubner and drives into the hidden side of business, economics, and so much more. He interviews CEOs, historians, and Nobel laureates to explore all kinds of topics, like why using swear words is more important than you think, and the psychology behind why projects are always late. New episodes of Freakonomics Radio are available every week, wherever you get your podcasts. And now, on to writing good survey questions. Neil Whitman wrote this piece back in 2012, and we just realized that it's become more relevant than ever with all the badly written surveys being passed around online. And last weekend, I worked with students at a hackathon who were making surveys to get feedback on their products, and they ran into a bunch of these problems. So whether you're doing scientific research, investigating the market for a new product, 
writing a political survey, or just having fun on your blog or Facebook page. Pay attention, because you need to think about how to write your survey questions, if you want them to give you the best information possible. I looked for some references for writing survey questions, and the main thing I discovered is that there is so much to think about that if your survey is really important, you should consult an expert. Even so, experts agree on a number of points that should give a more professional feel to the surveys you do yourself. I consulted three websites for these tips, and I'll put links to all three of them on the transcript. The website howto.gov is intended for government workers who want to assess customer satisfaction to improve how services are delivered. I also went to the nonprofit website Science Buddies, which provides guidance and science project ideas for K-12 students and teachers, and has a page on writing survey questions. For the information on that page, they credit the textbook Marketing Research by Parasaraman, Growal, and Krishnan. Lastly, I visited the website Creative Research Systems. This is a company that wants to sell you a software package for creating and processing surveys. However, they have a very informative section on designing survey questions, which agrees with advice given in the other sites I've mentioned. All of these websites give much more information than I'm going to give here, and I recommend visiting them when you can. Each site has various details that the others don't have, but they also agree on a lot of points. Those are the points I'm going to present today. First, you need to know what kind of information you want to get from your survey. If you only have a vague idea of what you're trying to find out, your questions will be vague too, and then so will your answers. As for ordering the questions, you should put them in a logical order and group questions on similar topics together. If possible, easier questions should come earlier in the survey. Again, this makes it easier and more pleasant for respondents to take the survey, which increases the likelihood that they'll actually finish it. In oral surveys, this also helps the interviewer build rapport with the respondent. Conversely, put the more difficult questions near the end. If respondents see a tough question right at the beginning, for all they know, all the questions could be that difficult, and filling out the survey starts to look like a real hassle. But if they see it at the end, they may put in the effort, since they know they're almost done, or because by this point they trust you and like you. Even if they quit, at least you'll have most or half of a survey to analyze instead of nothing. This advice goes not only for questions that are just difficult, but also for questions that are more sensitive, such as questions about income level or ethnicity. The next few tips have to do with structured questions. That is, questions in which you provide a choice of answers. Examples of structured questions include multiple-choice questions, or questions asking respondents to rate something on a numerical scale. The experts agree that in a multiple-choice question, the choices should cover all possible answers. That seems obvious, but sometimes this will mean including an option for other, or don't know, or even don't wish to say for sensitive questions. Not only will this get you more accurate data, but it builds trust. If respondents feel you're trying to make them give you an answer they don't agree with, they may just skip the question or stop answering questions altogether. In addition to providing for all possible answers, the choices in a multiple-choice question with just one response allowed should be mutually exclusive. They shouldn't overlap. For example, if a question asks, which kind of food is your favorite, 
the answers shouldn't include both Thai and vegetarian, because some food is both. If someone's favorite food is vegetarian Thai food, which response is appropriate? They won't know. You should also avoid double-barreled questions. That is, questions that ask about more than one thing at a time. For example, if you instruct a respondent, please rate your satisfaction with the service and food quality during your visit, you don't know what kind of answer you'll get. Will the respondent rate the service and overlook food quality? Will he or she do the opposite? Or maybe just report whichever rating is lower or higher? Instead, break this into two questions, one about the service and one about the food quality. For any kind of question, you should make sure it's not biased to make the respondent more likely to give a particular answer. At least, this is what you should do if you want as accurate a reading as possible. If, on the other hand, you're a sleazy politician who wants a survey to make your candidate look as good as possible, or the other candidate to look as bad as possible, then by all means, you should use loaded, emotional terms and phrase the questions in ways to get the answers you want. And you should go away. But if you're listening to this podcast for tips on better writing, you're clearly not one of those people. Here's just one example of a biased question. How much did you like the movie? That question will bias respondents toward a positive response, even if your answers include a choice that says not at all. How did you feel about the movie is more neutral. There are so many ways to bias a question that I can't go into them all. Aside from the words you use, the order in which you present the answers to the questions, and even the order in which you present the questions themselves can affect respondents' answers. In part because it's so easy to bias a question, the sources agree that you should test your survey before you administer it for real. Have colleagues read it and have a handful of people take it so you can see where they get confused or where any other problems come up. And finally, you should thank your respondents for helping you. Again, there are many more tips to keep in mind when you create a survey, and I recommend checking the sources I used here for more information and more details on specific types of survey questions. However, the few tips we covered today should help you avoid some of the most common mistakes. That segment was written by Neil Whitman, an independent researcher and writer on language and grammar. He blogs at literalminded.wordpress.com and tweets at literalminded. This Saturday, March 4th, is National Grammar Day, but all of March is Try a Podcast Month, hashtag tripod. I listen to podcasts every day. I can't imagine life without them. Maybe I'm unimaginative, but it's true. But there are still a lot of people who've never listened to a podcast. They're your friends and family, and they are missing out. So help them get started. Right now, picture your best friend who doesn't listen. What would he or she absolutely love? Got it? Now do it. Tell her about it in real life or on social media. If he doesn't know how to listen, show him. And tell me on social media what you recommended by using the hashtag tripod. That's T-R-Y-P-O-D. And thanks for spreading the word. And I have shout-outs this week for Tom, who listens while riding his bike on the Four Mile Creek Greenway in Charlotte, North Carolina, and at the gym. For this Angelina on Instagram, who wrote a great recommendation. I really appreciate it, and good luck with your writing. 
for MC Mommer, who listens while her little boy naps in his car seat, and Paula from Brazil, who says she's a big fan and uses Grammar Girl all the time because she's a translator. Thanks for telling me where you listen. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can find all my articles and old podcasts at quickanddirtytips.com and get the new podcasts as soon as they come out by subscribing on your favorite podcasting service. And remember to help your friends try a podcast. That's all. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Mignon. If you want to do more to hone your communication skills, then check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by the Stanford Graduate School of Business and hosted by my friend and Stanford lecturer, Matt Abrahams. You may remember Matt from his interview on the show back in September when he shared his top tips for becoming a better writer and speaker. Think Fast, Talk Smart is his Webby award-winning podcast, which has been downloaded 41 million times and has been the number one career podcast in more than 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Whether you're making a wedding toast or presenting at work, strong speaking skills are critical to success in business and in life, which is why Matt sits down with experts every week to talk about the best tips to unlock your communication potential. Hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, speechwriter and best-selling author Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. So what are you waiting for? Listen to Think Fast, Talk Smart every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. And tell Matt I said hi.